It's the 365 Days of Astronomy podcast. Coming in three, two, one. Astronomy Cast, episode 570 Discovering Comets. Welcome to Astronomy Cast, our weekly facts based journey through the cosmos where we help you understand not only what we know, but how we know what we know. I'm Fraser Kane, publisher of Universe Today. With me, as always, is Dr. Pamela Gay, a senior scientist for the Planetary Science Institute and the director of CosmoQuest. Hey, Pamela, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you doing, Fraser? Great. Uh, Full-on paradise is back here on the west oh, coast really? of, uh, of Canada. Uh, everything is growing like crazy. I can't weed fast enough to keep up with the, with the new plants coming I in. I have that. That, yes. Yeah. Yes. I, I put uh, eight, buck, eight garbage pails out filled with yard waste for the garbage trucks to come and take away. Oh, jeez. It's, it's, it's just madness. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just, it's beautiful. Like every, every winter you're like, oh, it'll never, it's just like, it just looks like such a horror show. And then, boy, come May, everything is just paradise again. I love it out I, here. I did plant my peas too early and they have little frost tinged leaves for the ones that didn't get uh, underneath my cold frame fast enough. Oh, weird. We, we can plant our peas here. Um, January and that, and that's like, you, you pretty much can't plant them early enough. January is fine. February is wow. fine. Yeah. And then that's the perfect timing because they like to be cold and then they come up and then they're, yeah, we actually have a very mild climate here on Vancouver Island compared to what you have. So, oh yeah. Well, and, and you started your peas outside. I started mine inside and they were like, Wait, wait, we don't like it out here. Why did you do this to us? <laughs> yeah, no, no. We, you, you always start them outside here. You don't, you're, it's crazy. You're wasting your time. You just dump, you dump a mountain of peas into the ground uh, and they are popping by, by March. You start to get fresh peas off them by <sighs> like April. I didn't plant any this year. You know, we've, we've shifted everything to flowers because somebody uh, <laughs> likes flowers and hates, uh, hates peas. Although peas make flowers. Anyway. Peas do make flowers. Yeah. Um, but uh, anyway, let's get on to it. So discovering comets is one of the fields that amateurs can still make a regular contribution to astronomy. But more and more comets are getting found by spacecraft, automated systems, and machine learning. This week, we'll talk about how comets are discovered and how you can get your name on one. Uh, have you ever tried to be uh, – have you ever tried to discover a comet? Very briefly in graduate school, and then the fact that I had to do graduate school work stopped that plan. Yeah. So, so how did how did that work? You're like, man, I want my name on a comet. Um, well, it was the Soho data, and so not everyone oh, was so getting their names. Yep. Yeah, but it was just the I want to be the first one. It's it's like. You see people who on threads and forums are like, first, and that's all they want to do is, this right. is the comet equivalent of this, because I just have to do everything nerdier. Um, so I just wanted to be able to say first on an image of a comet in Soho data. So, all right. So for, I mean, we've done episodes, whole episodes on comets. We've talked about yeah. many things, but for anyone who, I guess, I mean, I don't want I don't want to say like, you don't like, don't, don't explain what a comet is. But explain, 
explain enough because I'm like, come on, like this isn't baby's first astronomy cast. Like let's you know let's bring things forward a little bit here, but at least let's talk about the the features of comets as it relate to how and where we see them and find them. Okay, so comets are small bodies in our solar system that when you apply enough heat grow a cloudy coma around them and a tail of debris that is getting pushed back away from them by the solar wind. Their orbits tend to be a lot more elliptical than the orbits of asteroids. And so we often initially categorize something as asteroid or comet based on its orbit, because when you find a comet far enough out, you can't tell what its future may be. Um, but really the only difference between an asteroid and a comet is the ratio of things that melt and things that don't at right. inner solar system temperatures. And we have those two varieties of comets. We have the, the short period and we have the long period comets. And, and I'd say that we actually have three because we also have, well, Inter- comets the from other Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sure. We need to add that in Sure. Now. But they behave like uh, a long-period comet. And so I guess exactly. with the short-period comets, they go around and around and around, and they don't get that far away from the sun, and they appear on a regular right. basis. But, I mean, that can be Halley's Comet, like once every yeah. 70 some odd years. Yeah, years. You see this thing flare back up again and again and again, yeah. while the long periods, we're seeing them for the first time ever, and chances right. are they've never been to the inner solar system. And there's a really good chance that a lot of prior uh, long period comets that we saw were actually interstellar, and we just didn't know it because we didn't stop to think about it. And we weren't that good at making our like doing our observations to to measure that that orbit as carefully as maybe well, astronomers now are. We also talked in the past about how comets had hyperbolic and parabolic orbits. We didn't really think that through. <laughs> right, I see. And so, yeah. So yeah. so you're saying that there could and almost certainly have been long period comets seen in the past yes. that came from other star systems and we just went, "Oh, yeah, it's a long period comet, so it must have come right. from the Oort cloud." Exactly. And no one, right. And no one ever said, "Wait a minute. Right. That's like the longest period comet." Cuz if yeah, that wasn't that is the super case, funny. Why were we teaching undergrads that long period comets can have parabolic and hyperbolic orbits and you only see them once? Because really, that describes an interstellar orbit. So, did, did nobody ever like say, well, like, wait a minute. Okay, so a comet can have a hyperbolic orbit. You know, excuse me, ma'am. Uh, you know, yes, Pamela. Uh, is, it, is, it, is it possible that they came from other star systems? You know, yeah. I, it seems like a conversation that someone would have, would have brought up. But anyway, so when... Can we start to notice a comet as it's entering the the solar system? Well, they're generally quite tiny, and most objects aren't found any further out than Jupiter's orbit. Hmm. But once something is in a Jupiter orbit-sized sphere, and comets come from every single direction, folks. Right. Uh, Once they start to be within that sphere, their motions across the sky are zippy enough that we start to be able to see the motion from image to image, and they start to be close enough that one of moderate size can show up moving from image to image. Further out, you're dealing with two separate things hindering you. 
they're further away, so they appear fainter, they appear smaller, they may not appear at all because of their size. And the other thing that you're dealing with is further out, they're moving more slowly through the sky. And if you're just doing a whole group of images, you may not notice that one of those dots has actually moved a little bit. I think it's pretty interesting. I mean, we've talked about how how difficult it has been to find Kuiper Belt objects. And yeah. and a big part of it is that astronomers were only scanning the region of the sky where you would expect to see planetary objects, you know, in, in the plane of the ecliptic. And that's actually a very small chunk of the sky. And so they take these really powerful telescopes and slowly scan little bits of the sky. But the sky is is in all directions, and these comets can come out of all directions. So it's not surprising that something that that would have been detectable weeks, maybe even months earlier, you don't find until it is getting bright enough that you just can't miss it. And I think that's part of the, what's great about the game, the hunt of, of comet finding, is that nobody can look in all places at once. Therefore, we've all got a shot at finding the comets before anyone else and getting your name on it. And, and that's the cool thing is federally, nationally, academically, uh, no matter where in the world you may be, there's limited resources. And if you're a lucky nation, you have three or four big surveys that are out there looking through the sky, but they're each looking at one particular chunk of sky. And they optimize those chunks usually to look for things that are about to smack into us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that helpful. Is a comp- completely reasonable use of resources. And they also often optimize for the places that have the highest likelihood of having objects. So you want to look sunward because sunward, if an asteroid or a comet is coming at us from the direction of the sun, it's probably going to get missed by everyone else. And it will have probably just gotten, well, its orbit bent. So we may not have known what it was doing before that, that really, that's where the death is most likely to come from is the horizon as right. the sun sets. Right. Now, beyond that, you want to optimize for the plane of the planets that cut through our solar system where most things orbit. And the reason you optimize for that is because that's where most things orbit. Right. And so and you're going to get those short period comets and you're going to get some of those long period comets. And, and you're still not going to get all the long period comets. And this has to do with the origins of these objects because many of them got flung into the inner solar system through some sort of a collision, a three-body interaction where you have three objects gravitationally interacting with each other and fling one in towards the inner solar system. Or if you have two similarly sized objects trying to orbit around each other loosely in the outer solar system where the sun is the third body, you can also have that kick something into the inner solar system. Right. You, you have Jupiter, Uranus, Neptune all bouncing things around with their gravity periodically And these kinds of interactions don't demand that things end up flung in the plane of the planets. Right, right. Um, So so then let's talk about the methods that are currently used to detect comets. Um, How do we find them today? 
Well, the the way that you find them if you want to put your name on them. Yes, please. <laughs> is you pick yourself out a nice region of the sky that isn't too cluttered because you like yourself. And that is away from the plane of the solar system because that's probably being searched by somebody else. And you just sit there taking image after image after image and you look for something to move. Now, the thing is, your images don't have to be taken moments apart. So when I say sit there, what I actually mean is if you want to be super efficient about this, is you image this one, you image this one, you image this one, then you repeat. So you have a grid of images, mm -hmm. a grid of places on the sky, and you just march through that grid. And then when you process them, you look for things that move. Now, if you want to have pretty pictures, whether or not there's a comet in them or not, you can make the finding the comet a little bit more difficult by uh, having your telescope track at the rate that stars move in the sky. Now, if you want to make it easier to find comets on very particular orbits, then you figure out what is the typical speed of a comet through the sky. Now, this doesn't work for comets nearly as nicely as it works for asteroids. If you want to find an asteroid, best way you can discover an asteroid is to point at the asteroid belt, track your telescope at a typical asteroid belt velocity, and you're good to go. You're probably going right. to find something. And so then the stars are going to cause trails, but any dots in your picture, those are going to be asteroids. Now, the problem with comets and why this can work in particular cases, people try and find Kuiper Belt objects, this is what they do. Uh, if you're a comet, you could be moving on any path through that image that is vaguely around the sun in the correct direction. Even then, you can still get comets that are going the reverse way around the solar system. So this may not work. Yeah. But it's a technique. Right. Really, the best thing you can do is just track with the stars and hope for a comet. Right. But, uh, but I mean, like for your average amateur with a, you know, they've got a reasonable telescope. Maybe they've got an eight-inch Dobsonian telescope. Yeah. They know how to use it. They, they, they know the sky very well. And you, you just look into the sky and slowly scan across the sky bit by bit mm -hmm. and looking for anything that's a blur or a smear. And then yeah. you, and then you consult your, your, gu your, your guide, your Messier object list. And, and literally this is the purpose of the Messier <laughs> yes. object, right? Yes. Is, is to see whether that's a thing. And if it's a thing, then you ignore it. And if it's not a thing that you, that is familiar, then you figure out if there's, if there should be anything in that spot in space and if there's not then maybe you've discovered a comet and then you come follow up and you do follow-up observations and you try to get much better pictures of it and then maybe try to track its movements and announce it and and here the the full step needs to be find something fuzzy-ish if you're determined to find a comet it needs to be kind of fuzzy mm -hmm. make sure that sucker moves if it's not moving you may have just found yourself a galaxy if it's not moving and not particularly fuzzy and not in your map, you may have just found a supernova, which is also cool. Yeah. Um, so, so if it's brand new, not moving, you may have found a supernova. If it's brand new, is moving, you may have found a comet or an asteroid. And 
then if it is moving, you report it to the Minor Planet Center and they figure out, is this actually new? Are you actually the first person? And if you are, kudos, it's yours. Now, yep. the catch is to do this step, you really need to have, before you even have started, gotten yourself an observatory code from the Minor Planet Center. So this doesn't fall into the how you find it. It falls into the how you get credit for it. Right. So you can find things all you want, but you're not going to get credit unless you're, well, official. Yeah. And then, and then, but if you are the first, then you get to put your name on it. Often though, astronomers find these things on the same night. And so they have to share the name. And that's how you get examples exactly. of things like Chir- Chiriamov Gerasimenko. It's yes. two different astronomers or Shoemaker Levy, two yes. different astronomers on the same name of the comet. Okay. So that's the amateur that's working, toiling away night after night, scanning the sky, knowing it like the back of their hand and searching for these things. But of course, beep boop, let's make computers do this. <laughs> um, so how have computers really taken over the process of comet hunting? Well, and this is something that, that I have backburnered writing software to, to do even more of this. You take two images, you subtract them from each other. And the reality is the sky from night to night, it changes. So when you subtract two images, it's never perfect. You're always going to get left with something ugly that has donuts that are the residuals of one of the images. But you can tell your software, if it looks like this ugly donut, ignore it. If you have a perfectly dark, dark spot, that means that in one of your images, you had an object. If you have a perfectly bright spot, that means in the other of your images, you had an object. So you subtract images. And quite often what they'll actually do is average a whole bunch of images to get even better signal to noise. Then subtract that mastered image from the entire set. And then you just step through and hopefully you'll see something moving along. Now, worst case is you see something in one and only one image as it escapes from your field of view. That's frustrating. That just means you found something super close that you may never be able to find again, and you don't get to name right. that. But but it's not just the you know the process of actually looking through the images. It's the actual telescopes themselves are robotic oh, yeah. now. Yes, and and so you can set up a survey scope and. A lot of people do this not to do surveys for comets, but they'll set up their telescope before they go to bed to go image their favorite objects. Variable star astronomers do this so that they can check for all possible nova that might be going off that so that they can get better timelines for the series of variable stars that they're studying. And so you program your telescope before you go to bed to take a series of images. Now, if you're doing variable stars, if you're doing... Uh, pretty much anything that requires you to know how bright something is, you want to use a filter. You don't even have to do that if you're just searching for asteroids or comet. Just let all the light hit your detector, all the light into your detector. Yeah. I mean, if you don't want to make pretty astrophotos, then let all the light into your detector and let all the stars just blow out. Don't worry about it. The faint fuzzies will show up and then you can follow up and make other observations. Exactly. Yeah. 
Um, the and it, what's great about the modern software is you can just you can program your your telescope and say look at this, then look at this, look at this. You can just program in your whole night's observations. The moment the sun goes down, your telescope goes to work. It's working all night long. Beep beep beep. Just just scanning the sky and then crunching all the data. In the morning, you get up and look through it. Now now what about um, you know? interesting astronomers like pan stars or people like that who are these people well pan stars is just a automated survey that some federal program paid for uh, a lot of these are honestly funded through a combination of nsf nasa private foundations donations and these systems so you have linear you have pan stars you have swan uh, these different systems are automated images. And with linear and pan stars, their software is going to pull these things out just night after night yep. after night. No human intervention required. You don't get credit. Yeah. Pan stars. That's why it's not like, you know, why it's not like the same comment. Like pan stars is back. No, 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 no. It's a brand new pan star. Pan stars, <laughs> pan stars is hogging. Pan stars, as you said, swan. Yeah, uh, I think there's Atlas. There's a bunch of these that are all just hogging the comet discoveries now. But comet swans, there, there's a bunch of these. <laughs> uh, the, the one that we're dealing with right now is C2020F8 swan. Yeah, the comet's swan. Yes, and these, they, they stand for the solar wind anisotropies instrument, which is on board SOHO. These are SOHO discoveries, and you can actually get credit for these. So SOHO is a spacecraft that is out there studying the sun day and night. Well, it just lives in orbit. It has no comprehension of day and night. As it sits there out there orbiting, looking at the sun, it catches the surrounding environment in its imagery. And the scientists studying the sun really don't care about all of these comets that are quite often taking a dive into the sun like mosquitoes having a bad day. Now, these comets, all these images get posted online, and there are people out there who have written software to download all these images, process them looking for comets, and then they report them. And so there was a regular everyday amateur astronomer, Michael Mazziazzo, who is the human being, the amateur astronomer, who got credit for C2020F8 Swan, which all of us are currently enjoying the imagery from. So you can use space telescopes, it turns out, to discover comets as long as the data you're using is somebody else's trash. <laughs> right, right, right. And and in fact, Soho, for the longest time, was the most prolific comet hunter out there. It was just watching comets as they died. So it was like, exactly. found one, and I watched it die. What a horrible existence for a spacecraft to just watch <laughs> death after death after death. But but it was the most prolific comet hunter out there uh, if what it saw was just comets smashing into the sun. Tell me about yeah. the future then. What does the future hold for finding comets? Well, so the northern hemisphere, the story we've told, will remain true. But for those southern hemisphere objects, those objects that are going to be in the nighttime sky and visible to the, the Vera Rubin Observatory with the LSST, um, that telescope is going to be probing the entire sky every, I think it's four nights. Yeah, four I, nights. Yeah. And 
It's going to be finding objects down to 20 plus magnitudes. <laughs> so give, give people comparison. Like how faint is that? Oh, man. So on a 30 inch telescope, you can hit 20th magnitude in V with a reasonably fast instrument right. in like 20 minutes. Right. And you have to process the bejesus out of that image. You have to have the best bias images, the best dark images, the best flat frames. And you can see those 20th magnitude objects are there, but you may not want to use your data until you take a few more frames. Right, because it's fuzzy-wuzzy, blurry-worry. It's not good. While while Vera Rubin is going to crank that out fast. Six Sigma, no big deal. Yeah. Entire sky. Yeah. And so, and so suddenly, every comet hunting instrument out there is going to have to take a back seat to the mighty power of the Vera Rubin Observatory in the Southern Hemisphere. In the Southern Hemisphere. Exactly. So, so Northern Hemisphere people still have hope. Yeah. But Vera Rubin's going to be finding all – it's going to be taking all your supernova lunch. It's going to be finding all your comets, all your asteroids, all your planet nines. It's going to be seeing everything that it can see, and it's going to report them first. And so in, you know, any amateur uh, astronomers living in the Southern Hemisphere – may want to take on database programming as a <laughs> as a second job to uh to start grinding through your Rubin uh, uh data to try and find those comets in addition to their to their work. And and the thing about LSST is it can find things but it can't necessarily follow up on things cuz it's a massive telescope and if it happens to find something that gets bright it can't deal it will be blinded by your average asteroid. Um, unfortunately, it will also be blinded by your average Starlink. But that's a different episode. Right? Yeah. Every 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 frame will have a Starlink going through it. Unfortunately, maybe. Yeah. Uh, but there's going to be so much opportunity for amateur astronomers to instead of necessarily getting the naming rights to instead get their names on the research papers by following up on the yeah. things that LSST finds. So I think the future of southern hemisphere amateur astronomy observationally is going to change, but it's going to get in some ways much more necessary because we're going to have so many things to follow up on. Uh, at the same time, yeah, northern hemisphere we just don't have places that get the amazing telescopes built. A little bit of a combination of nothing as good as the Atacama Desert and nowhere as uh, unlight polluted as yeah. the Atacama Desert. Closest we get is Hawaii, and you can only build so many telescopes up there. Literally, it's legislated that way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, but I'm, yeah. I, I, someday, I hope, we'll have something like... Vera Rubin in the Northern Hemisphere. And I'm sure it's inevitable. Like if it does start to to dump all this data and make all these discoveries, then we'll see a Northern one maybe in the Canary Islands or maybe, you know, somewhere like that. And then we will see the, the Northern Hemisphere covered as well as the Southern Hemisphere. And, and then it, it really well, might be a time to go and, uh, you know, get into database programming. So more to the point, when when I was still a college student, we thought a four-meter telescope was something amazing. And people are now throwing out four-meter telescopes, basically saying, we can't afford to manage this. Does someone want to, like, take yeah. over our telescope? 
Yeah. As we get to the point that we're building these tens of meter telescopes, the six and eight meter telescopes. Yes. Are going to start collecting dust. Right. So hopefully someday one of the existing massive multimeter scopes can get turned into something with the instrumentation that LSST has. So instead of building a whole new telescope, let's just throw all the cameras on it. Yeah. And build the automation into the telescope itself. So it can can go fast. Yeah. 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 I think the, uh, I mean, the Vera Rubin is an eight meter class telescope. It just has a ridiculously fast mount, ridiculously fast camera and mountains. I think like one of the biggest sensors ever built on a telescope. Have I mentioned how much I'm looking forward to this telescope? I'm looking forward to this telescope. Yes. Well, okay. So if you want to get your name on an, on a comet, we, hopefully we've given you some guidelines and now you can uh, get out there, observe, get your name on a comet. Let us know if it works out for you uh, and we will, we will celebrate your discovered comet, except for the one that's going to be hitting Earth. You know, yeah, you don't want to discover that one. You don't want your name one. on that one. Pamela, yeah. speaking of names, do you have any names for us this week? I do. As always, we are here thanks to the generous contributions of people like you. You're everything allows us to pay our humans, in this case, Beth Johnson and Ali Pelfrey um, and Richard Drum to do our video editing, our audio editing, and create all the content that goes up on our websites. And um, we, we are grateful that you've let us do this. And we would like to thank our patrons at patreon.com slash astronomycast. We can't thank you all in one week. So here is this week's running selection. Sarah Turnbull, G4184, Dean McDonald, Jillian Rhodes, Dana Nori, Roland Warmerdam, Paul Disney, Antisor? Antisor. Uh, Don- Donald Mundus, Jason Graham, Andrew Stevenson, William Jones, Father Prax, Scott Bieber, Bart Flaherty, Russell Petto, Kenneth Ryan, Samansky, Glenn McDavid, Matthias Hayden, Dan Littman, Dean, Benjamin Davies, and Nalia. Thank you all for being here as our supporters. Thank you, everybody, and we'll see you all next week. You are listening to the 365 Days of Astronomy podcast. The 365 Days of Astronomy podcast is produced by the Planetary Science Institute. Audio post production by Richard Drum. Bandwidth donated by Libsyn.com and Wizard Media. You may reproduce and distribute this audio for non-commercial purposes. This show is made possible thanks to the generous donations of people like you. Please consider supporting our show on Patreon.com forward slash 365 Days of Astronomy and get access to bonus content. After 10 years, the 365 Days of Astronomy podcast is entering its second decade of sharing important milestones in space exploration and astronomy discoveries. Join us and share your story. Until tomorrow, goodbye. <laughs>